All right. Let us pray. O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully grant that by your power we may be defended against all adversity through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, good. We're still on confession and absolution, and just so that you realize how much there is to talk about, the lesson plan that I'm using is still the same one that we used the last time. And we only got through about a quarter of what I wanted to cover. Uh, so, confession and absolution is a really big topic. It isn't the biggest topic that we go through in this class, but it is one of the bigger ones. So, before we start moving ahead, I want to just, because it's been a couple weeks, uh, review some of the things that we have already talked about with confession and absolution. The first thing is um, the desire of your natural sinful heart is always to do what? Yes. Sin? Yes, correct. Good. And Heath, the way it works in this class, I know that you're just joining us now. The way it works in this class is you don't actually have to raise your hand. So you're graduating from hand raising. <laughs> so just go ahead and shout it out. Yeah, sin. The natural inclination of, you, of your natural heart, and that's an important thing, your natural heart, the one you're born with, is to sin. And that's why I gave you that cartoon last time. You remember that. Follow your heart and he says what's it going to be heart and the heart says it's going to be sin because that's what the heart always wants that's that's deep down the desire of the natural heart and things start to get complicated for you in baptism because one of the things that baptism does is it kills the old heart and makes a new heart and I'm using catechism language but I'm changing the words a little bit because I'm saying heart instead of man but it's the same thing or heart instead of old or new Adam but it's all the same thing so you have this kind of broken gross blackened charred hardened nasty heart and that's the one that you're born with and the Lord kills it and then gives you a new heart that's much better but somehow the old one still still keeps kicking, still keeps coming back. So you never quite get away from it, which is why we can say something like, you are simultaneously both saint and sinner, which is something in the Lutheran Church called, uh, the simul is kind of its shorthand, but it's from the Latin, simul justus et peccator. And if you're in midweek, you already know what that is, because that's one of your terms. Simul justus et peccator, which is just the Latin for simultaneously a sinner and a saint. So you have this brand new heart that's a really great heart, and that's the heart that motivates you to live uh, the way Christ wants you to live, because that's really the heart of Christ. And one of the other things that baptism does then is it opens your eyes so that you see that blackened, hardened, charred, gross heart and say, ooh, maybe this isn't as good as I thought that it was because now I know something better. My eyes are opened. And that is one of the reasons why baptism gets complicated, or, or rather why it makes your life complicated, because then the rest of your life is this war. Like St. Paul says, the good that I would do is not what I do, and the very thing I desire not to do, that's the thing that I do. And you, you, you get his frustration in his own words uh, with his own inability to do all of the things that he wants and not to do the things that he doesn't want to. Now what that doesn't mean for you as Christians is that you don't continue to strive after what is good. You know that you're going to sin, you know that you're going to fall into evil, but you don't say, well, if I'm going to do it, might as well let it happen. Uh, and on that count, I have a really good story to tell. Um, my brother is infamous even as an adult, for falling into any body of water that he happened to be nearby. And there was one Saturday that my grandpa was going to be really nice and take us all fishing in a little pond in downtown Madison, Tenney Park. 
and you could go on this little bridge and you could fish for sunfish in the pond over the edge of the bridge. So my sister and I were with grandpa on the bridge fishing and all of a sudden we heard this splash and we turned and my brother was just wading around in the pond and my grandpa pulled him out and asked him why he was in the water and my brother's response was well I figured I was probably going to fall in anyway I might as well just climb in <laughs> so that's not the way to live as a Christian I know I'm probably going to sin so I might as well let it happen no because that's not what your new heart wants you to do that's why the Lord's constant um, constant word to you is always, hey, listen, uh, run away from evil. That's not the stuff you want to do, and, and come after me. And that's why when you fall and stumble, there is confession and absolution, because you know you're going to fall, and this is one of your tools that you have available to you along the way to help you when it is that you stumble, even though you don't want to stumble. So, um, when we talk about sin, sin, just as a review, uh, sin, generally speaking, is any kind of rebellion against God. And really, if you want to say it in one word, uh, sin is disagreement. God says yes, sin says no. Sin is also pride. Because if you say no to God, then who do you say knows best? You. Yeah. If you say, no thanks, God, or I don't think I really need that, God, or I probably could do it better, or I'll take it under advisement, then the person who really is in charge, or at least is trying to be, is you. And that is pride. Uh, pride is the chief of all sins. I talk about that a lot. Pride is the chief of all sins because pride is the sin that tries to make God out of self. And that's bad. Pride is idolatry. So, uh, sin, generally speaking, is rebellion against God, it's pride, but it's disagreeing with God. God says, hey, that's bad for you, and sin says, no, it's good for me. God says, don't drink the bleach, and sin says, oh, I want to drink that bleach. I think it's really good for me, and it probably tastes great, too. I'm going to make a beeline for it. Okay? Uh, so, it's disagreement. And then, that's just sin generally, and we talked about two kinds of sins. If you remember that, there was what we would call a mortal sin or an venial sin. This is different than probably how you learned it, um, because you have the Roman Catholic background, but the vocabulary will be familiar to you. Mm -hmm. So, um, remember this. I'm going to read this quote again because it's such a good quote and it's so important from Martin Chemnitz, um, a Lutheran theologian. Mortal sin and venial sin are distinguished from each other not on the basis of the substance of the deed involved or according to some difference in the sin committed, which is to say that stealing is not any different of a sin than taking a knife and stabbing your husband. They're exactly the same. But instead, on the basis of the person or because of the difference of those who commit the sin. So the classification of mortal versus venial isn't because of the sin, but because of the nature of the heart of the person who commits them. And these are the examples then. If it's a venial sin, uh, which is kind of the smaller, it's the sin that you are, you know was bad and you regret, you have contrition for, you repent of, you strive to turn away from. Um, I said last time it's easy to recover from because you know instantly that that was bad. Ooh, ugh, I need to go confess that. I need to get rid of that. I really don't ever want to do that again. Let the memory of my be sin be so terrible to me that I wish never to commit them again. Um, that's a guilty feeling with it. Yes, yes. The one that you know is wrong, that you don't want to do again, that you that you it isn't a struggle for you, um, those those kinds of things. So, a mortal sin, on the other hand, and hence the term mortal, because it is very very bad for you to the point of causing death, uh, is the sin that you have no remorse for, the sin that you continue to 
dive into with no regrets, that sin that hooks you and attaches that ball and chain to you or the millstone around you and drags you down. And uh, at the end of the day, the sin that you say, I really would rather burn in hell than give up. And you might not think that you actively say that, but con constant repetition in the same sin to the point where you'll become numb to it is, in a sense, saying, I really would rather burn than give this thing up. So those are the big, big, big bad sins, and they're different for every person, which is why you can't say X, Y, and Z is a mortal sin, and A, B, and C is a venial sin, because maybe uh, a venial sin for me is a mortal sin for you. Um, the devil knows the chinks in everyone's armor, and he knows how best to and to uh, persuade. So it's, uh, it's based on the character of the heart, which is why you always strive to run away from evil and only run to what is good. Touching evil incarnates evil. Um, Luther says of the man who committed suicide, uh, he surely did not take his own life. The devil took his life because he incarnated evil. The devil was made manifest in the evil that he joined himself to. That's why you run away from evil. That's why you don't touch evil things. That's why you don't eat the food that's sacrificed to idols, as Paul says. Okay, um, All of this is just re review. And then this is, this is sort of my little thing I want to stick with you. Which of your sins does Jesus not forgive? Okay, I was going to say, I had a question jotted on here from after the last class and I said how are how are you dying if your sins are forgiven because you kept saying dying and in sin you're dying this slow death oh yeah sure but then before the class before I think was all of your sins were forgiven they're erased they're no more yeah isn't so it fun how are you actually dying <laughs> yeah if your sins are forgiven? great hey that's a fantastic question I'm so glad you asked that this is what makes Christianity so much fun, because Christianity really is rooted in paradox. You're dying, but you're also living. You die while you receive life, and part of that is because you have flesh. I mean, Luther says um, in, in the Christian questions and their answers, which, you know what, I don't... You don't mean to get you off on another test? Uh, we're far from where we where I would like us to be right now anyway, so we're in. Might as well swim. <laughs> Christian questions with their answers. Yeah, okay, 329 in the hymnal. Grab a hymnal. This is in the catechism. 329. Um, this, is, this, this is really good. These questions were designed to be things that you reflect on before going to communion. And the reason why I bring these up is because of the question on uh, uh, 3.30, number 20. What should you do if you are not aware of this need, that is the need for the sacrament, and have no hunger and no thirst for the sacrament? To such a person, this is the answer, to such a person no better advice can be given than this. First he should touch his body to see if he still has flesh and blood. <laughs> do you still have flesh and blood? Because if the answer to that is yes, then who boy are you in for trouble because your flesh and blood is sinful. And it lives in this sinful world, so you're dying. That's, that's kind of what I mean. Sin brings about this slow, painful death. What makes it worse is joining yourself to sin. Because then not only do you die in the flesh, but you're also bringing about spiritual death. Joining yourself to sin all, can only ever bring about death. And sin itself, as manifested in the works of the flesh, always has the penalty of death. That's sort of the theme of... Mortal death? or Mortal death, yeah. The punishment for sin is always death. That's why you die because you're a sinner. You'll die. But the victory is in that you die, but you don't really die. Remember from baptism, if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. I love it so much. I love that so much. If you die before you die, you don't die when you die. Which is why funerals are kind of nice in a way. Um, because at a Christian funeral, 
you really hear the promise of the resurrection of the flesh, that you know that the person isn't gone forever because they have died in the Lord. They're with Christ awaiting the resurrection that is to come. And at the time of the resurrection, sure, you'll have your flesh back, but it'll be a, a better flesh. So that's what I mean. So there's kind of two deaths, right? There's the death of the body, and then we'd say the death of the soul, or spiritual death, which is really bad. Spiritual death is being cast into the outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And um, joining yourself, you are, you're already going to die. I mean, your life on earth is basically 80, 70, 80, 90 years on the Green Mile. That's it. You're born into a death sentence. You know that you're going to die. You're mortal creatures. That's inevitable. But uh, spiritual death is much worse. And that's what happens when you join yourself to evil. So we can talk about Christ bringing life and life in the forgiveness of sins because where there is forgiveness of sins, as the Catechism says, there is life and salvation. If sin brings death and then your sins are wiped away, what is the only consequence? Well, then, then there's only life. Your body's still going to die, but you've died before you died, do you see? So then when you die, you're not going to die because where there is forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation. Does that sort of answer your question? It does. Okay. It does. Yeah. So death is always the consequence for sin. Death is always the consequence for sin. Uh, but there's one sin that Jesus cannot forgive. Do you remember what it is? This is something. This is something to take to your grave with you. Yes, Heath. You don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to raise your hand. Stop being so polite, young man. Believing in another God. No, Christ can forgive that. Rejecting God. Yes, rejecting God. Yes, you're right. I want you to say it the way I said it, though. Because <laughs> we're talking about confession I'm and absolution. The way else <laughs> well, I can sympathize. Um, Remember this, the only sin that Christ can't forgive is the one you don't give to Him. So the sins that you hold back from the Lord are the sins that you say, I'll take care of these myself. And then on the last day, when judgment comes and you've said, these are the ones I'll take care of, the Lord says, okay, you said you really wanted to take care of those. You held them. I can't take them away from you. You've got to give them to me. Those are the ones that would be playing on that little screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, the only sin that Jesus can't forgive is the sin you don't give to Jesus, which is why you go to pri you, why you go to confession and absolution. You give your sins to Jesus. And this, what this doesn't mean, from the Roman Catholic side, is that when you come to confess, you have to remember and speak every single thing that you have done. Uh, that's something that was a controversy during the time of the Reformation. The idea that, yes, I know that if I don't give my sins to Jesus, they won't be forgiven, but that means then that you have to like, keep a record of everything, and any one of those things that you forget to speak or give up, that it's held against you. That's not really what it means when we say, give your sins to Jesus, or if you don't give your sin to Jesus, he doesn't forgive it. You, you confess generally every Sunday when we have the Eucharist because you say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you. You say, I've really been a bad, poor, dumb bear, and Jesus says, no, you're a really good bear, it's okay. You're giving your sins to Jesus there. So, and, and we'll look at some of this actually today. And, and go into more detail there. But suffice it to say that the, sins that the only sin that Jesus can't forgive is the sin you don't give to Jesus. So what should you do? Give your sins to Jesus. Doesn't have to be hard. Christianity doesn't have to be hard. Give your sins to Jesus. Jesus says he'll give you his burden and he'll take yours. And trust me, carrying Jesus' burden is a whole lot better than carrying the one that you have. Because Jesus' burden is light. Come to me, all who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Okay? All right, now, let's get into what we really need to do today. Um, I'm going to talk... I'm going to talk more about sin, uh, but specifically conf uh, confession and absolution. We'll talk a little bit about the right, what happens, what you confess, how you confess. And we're going to talk about penance. Because Lutherans don't ever talk about penance. 
and it's actually something that Lutherans believe. Um, we just talk about it a little differently. This is kind of the theme, is we believe a lot more. We have a lot more in common than you think, but often we talk a little bit differently about those things. So, um, firstly, why does, a, why does a Christian confess his sins? This should be kind of obvious at this point. Uh, Heath, yes, you're too polite. I, I don't. Need, I can't keep track of it when you raise your hand. Um, that you forgot. Yeah. I I'm sorry. I I scared away your thought. Um, really, you know, it should be obvious because that's what we've just been talking about. You confess your sins because Jesus says, "Hey, if you give me your sins, I'll get rid of them." You know, it's like this was even part of my sermon for uh, the text from John chapter two. The marriage celebration in Cana when Jesus turns water into wine and what does his mother say to the servants? Whatever he says to you, do it. She comes to him with the problem. She says, hey, whatever he says, do it. That's your life advice. Whatever, whatever he says, do it. <laughs> and uh, the reason you give your problems to Jesus is because when Jesus takes your problem, then it ceases to exist. When Jesus takes your sin, this is, this is kind of the thing about absolution is Christ, the Lord cannot hold anything against you on the last day when Christ has taken away all your sins because he's obliterated them. They don't exist. That book, there's nothing in it because it's just covered in Christ's blood. It's like your sins are written in red ink in the book, and then the blood comes, and then all you see is the blood of Christ, and that's the only thing that's left on the page. Oh, well, there's nothing here. I don't see anything. He obliterates it all. Now, so that's a really important way to think about it. The things you give to Jesus, <clears throat> he takes care of, and he takes care of really well. Jesus is the best problem solver. Um, faith agrees with what Jesus says and it obeys him. So really confession and absolution is something that stems from faith, which is how Luther can say something like, when I urge you to go to confession and absolution, I'm urging you to do nothing more than simply be a Christian. Because that's what faith does. Christ says, come to me, and faith says, yes, yes, yes. Jesus says, I want you to give me your sins so that I can take care of them for you. And faith says, yes, 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 please. Faith desires the good that Jesus desires. Hey, absolution's really good for you, and sin's really bad for you. The bleach under the cupboard's really bad for you, but the fruit snacks in the pantry are really good for you. Why don't you just have fruit snacks instead? And you say, hey, you know what? I think I would rather have those than bleach. Uh, faith wants to live. I mean, natural man wants to live too, but doesn't know how, doesn't know what life is. But faith does know what life is, and faith wants it. Faith wants to be with Christ. Faith wants to live, understanding what true life really is. Now, what is heaven going to be like? Well, it's going to be like the divine service, except it'll never end, ever. An eternal church service. That's kind of a joke because then the kids always go, oh no. <laughs> but that's really, it's like the combination of the best church service that you've ever been to that will never end and the best wedding reception that you've ever been to where you don't have to worry about getting up for work the next morning. <laughs> Hopefully okay. we can sing then. Yeah. <laughs> of the best oh, voices yeah, around. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so faith wants to live. Faith trusts in the promises of God. So that when God says, hey, I promise you that when you bring your sins to me, I'll get rid of them. This is, the, this is absolution. This is life. Faith says, yes, you've promised. That's how it is. And faith also demands that God fulfills them. Hey, now listen, bub. You said you were going to forgive my sins, so now do what you promised. Uh, you know, the father who promises ice cream to his son if he runs to Menards with him, doesn't get upset when they go home or are on their way home and the son says, hey, wait, you promised that we were going to get ice cream. The father can't possibly be angry about that because the father was the one who said, hey, we'll get ice cream. The father is overjoyed that the son remembered and trusted in the promises. And that's uh, the same way it is with God. God makes a promise and you have the ability to say, hey, do what you said. And, he'll, and he doesn't get angry. You can be a little bit rude in that sense. Hey, you said you were going to do this. Give us this day our daily bread. There's no pleas in the Lord's Prayer. There's just the demand. But it's the demand of faith that's based in the promises. And then it's a good demand. It's a healthy demand. 
And it's a demand that the Lord rejoices in because it's the demand of faith. Yes, Heath? Um, Pastor, don't the, in a lot of the Bible stories, don't they beg God for forgiveness? They do, which is what and you do in confession and absolution. Lord, I've sinned. Have mercy on me and forgive me my sins. Yeah, but about what you said, you don't have to uh, like beg Him to do that. You don't have to go, <clears throat> oh, please, please, will you do this? You don't have to follow the manners that your mom and dad make you follow. You can say, hey, give me daily bread. And you don't have to say a prayer that says, oh, would you pretty please do this? And I understand if you don't want to, but, but please, really. And you don't have to pray like that because he's already told you, and we'll talk all about this when we talk about prayer, but he's already told you what he's going to do for you, and he's already made promises to you. So then when you call upon him, you can say, hey, you said we were going to get ice cream. Now let's have that ice cream. And he'll say, that's right, I did tell you we would get ice cream. Here it is. I'm glad that you remembered, and I'm glad that you trusted that when I say something, I do it. Okay. Um, and finally, you, you confess your sins. You go to confession absolution because God wants you to live. I mean, as much as you want to live... Uh, this new man wants to live in life as it now understands it in Christ. Um, even more so does God want you to live. And he's given you, he's given you these avenues of life. Hey, your sins are going to kill you. You really need to, you really need to buck that. It's like the parents who want their child to confess. When I, when I was growing up, my parents would always, you know, we would get spanked, and before we were spanked, my parents would always make us tell them why it was that we were being spanked. Why are you getting spanked? And, well, because I lied, or because I did what you told me not to do, or whatever, whatever it was. Um, or the, the parent that says, did you play ball in the house and break the window or the vase? You don't ask because you don't know. You ask because you want your child to confess because the confession is what's good. Hey, acknowledge the guilt, take it out, and we'll move ahead. So the Lord wants you to confess because he says, hey, give it to me and I'll take care of it. Don't hold on to that. Don't try and do it yourself. It's just going to make it harder. It's just going to make it more painful if you try and take care of it yourself. So just let me do it. I've already told you I'm good at it. So... Uh, knowing what the Christian knows about sin and about the need for confession, how do you confess and what sins should you confess? Really great question. And there's a good answer in the Catechism on 326. Okay, confession and absolution. 326. Small catechism. This is why we use the hymnal. Because it's, this class is so focused in the liturgy and in biblical narrative, but organized and structured around the liturgy, you, almost, you have to have the hymnal so we can refer to things. But also because the small catechism is here, and I want you to know all of the cool stuff that's in the hymnal so you realize this isn't just a book that is at church that has the things we sing. It's actually a tool for your entire life. So here we are. Confession. Uh, what sins should we confess? Before God we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. Where do we do it in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses. Yeah, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive. Well, which trespasses? Does the Lord say, well, now when you pray the Lord's Prayer, make sure that you put in the bullet points and record everything. Otherwise, that prayer doesn't count. <laughs> See, it's kind of silly. You're, you're confessing generally. What do you say in the divine service? All my sins and iniquities. In thought, word, and deed. And there are some rites, like we'll look at this towards the end of class, the rite of private confession and absolution um, says that I have something to the effect that I've hurt others um, and I've sinned in ways that I know and in ways that I don't know. So sometimes you sin and you don't even know that you've sinned. See, so then how do you confess the sin you don't know you've committed? And, and how can it be held against you 
if you still confess generally. I know that I've sinned, and I know that there's even sins that I don't know about. How can I possibly confess every single sin? I mean, that's what the psalmist says, right? Who can, who can recount his errors? Who can do it? There are just so many of them. I mean, Jesus says seven times seventy for a reason. Seven times seventy per person per second. I mean, that, per second. That's, that's the forgiveness here. Seven times seventy per person per second per hour per day per life. I mean, the point there is, hey, listen. Everything. <laughs> so you can never remember everything. And you, you never quite know how what you say or do affects others, either. Uh, so you may not realize that you've caused hurt, and maybe you did. Yeah, I just, whenever there's communion, that's one of those that you always have the sins that you remember, but you, I feel like I always have to deal with the, and everything else that I have done that <laughs> could never, I don't know, it's one of those that I guess there's no way to ever know. Every sin you've ever committed? No. So general confession is sort of a necessary thing. And the prayer in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, is necessary as well. I don't know what all... I know some of them, but I don't know all of them. I know that they exist. So forgive me all of those trespasses. It's the confession that, hey, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I've done wrong. Please forgive me. I, I'm, I take away my sins. I'm giving them all to you, the ones that I remember and the ones that I don't, but take it all away. Okay. Uh, so you should plead guilty of all sins, even those we're not aware of. But before the pastor, now this is talking about private confession and absolution. Here's the difference. There's general, which is like the Lord's Prayer or like uh, when you come for the Eucharist and we start the divine service. Or when we do something like we do on Ash Wednesday, which is corporate confession and absolution. But in any of those cases, you're praying together with one voice as one body, not as individuals. And you're saying just generally, I have sinned, which is true. But private confession and absolution is something slightly different. Before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. That's an opportunity for the specific things that really are troubling you. So um, this is an opportunity to combat mortal sins, the sins that you have struggle, you, you have a struggle feeling bad about. You know, maybe your head knowledge says, yeah, I know probably this is a bad thing, but your heart says, well, I want to just keep on doing it though, and then you just keep on doing it. The things that you struggle with the most, the things that really trouble you, perhaps it is maybe just a venial sin, but somehow it just really worms its way down into the deepest depths of your conscience, and you just feel so awful about something that you've done. Where do you go for relief? What if you confess your sins in the divine service and somehow when the pastor looks out at the whole congregation, you think to yourself, there's 75 people here. Maybe that isn't really for me. Or maybe it's not strong enough. Maybe it has to be focused. Maybe if a pastor speaks absolution, it's split evenly between all of the people and somehow I don't get enough of it. But those kind of thoughts and those kind of feelings, that's when you go to private confession and absolution to um, address it. Particularly burdensome sins require particularly acute absolution. Sometimes, this is what uh, general confession and absolution is, you're just taking a shotgun and you're just blasting the barn side. You know what? <laughs> That'll do it. But private confession and absolution is the sniper. Hitting that very specific part of the target every single time. So it's the difference between something that's broadly applied and something that is very focused. So particularly burdensome sins always require particularly acute comfort. And sometimes general absolution isn't comforting. That doesn't mean you should skip out on private confession and absolution if you don't feel like you're burdened by anything because part of the right is also just you and the pastor. But the pastor's not really the pastor, um, which we'll talk about next week. Um, and you're there to receive absolution. Maybe you just, I don't know, feel like... A sinner. I don't know why I feel so guilty. Well, then maybe that's an opportunity for private confession and absolution. Maybe you don't feel like there's one, two, three, four, nine, ten specific things. Just 
I just feel bad for being bad. That's fine. You can come and confess that. You can come and confess generally. Uh, so, now let's look at this next question here. So, which are those sins, those particular ones that we know and feel in our hearts? Well, you know, how am I supposed to know? Here's a good guide. It's in no way exhaustive, but it helps. Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Are you any of those things? Yes. Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been in that station where you've been placed and acted in accord with the requirements of that station to the very best of your ability 100% of the time? If the answer is no, then you have something to think about and to confess. Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Hmm. Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Now even there you can say, yes I have, or I don't know. But the answer can never be no. Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Well, not me. I'm the politest person around. Mm, you can never say no. The best you can ever say is, I don't know. And if, you're, if the answer to that question is, really, I don't know, then you ought to go to private confession absolution. Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Again, the answer can only be yes or I don't know. You see this, so you can't ever look at these questions like this. And again, this isn't exhaustive. It's just a simple guide. The answer, when you really start looking at yourself and reflecting on how you ought to be versus how you are, can never be, oh yeah, I'm exactly, I'm exactly where I should be. That's what I, I, I'm a, I rem there's, a, there's a Lutheran radio program called Issues Etc., which if you don't listen to it, and you have time to kill or you listen to books or podcasts or things. That's a really nice thing kind of to add to your arsenal. They have a lot of guest, guests that come on and talk about subjects, a lot of pastors, a lot of seminary professors, and, and then other people um, to talk about a wide range of topics. So it's really good, issues, etc. And um, I remember listening to it once when I was in college. I was riding the bus, the number six bus, back to my car after classes and I was listening to it and they were talking to this evangelical pastor and the host said something to him about sin and the guy was like oh I don't do that anymore and he was and he the host was taken aback he said uh, uh, excuse me he said, oh yeah I don't sin anymore ever since I was saved I don't, I don't sin anymore and he said so so you've never caused any harm to anybody you never said a harsh word you've never coveted or, or wanted something or stolen or done anything like that. You never murdered your brother in your heart. Oh, absolutely not. I live as a great Christian. I don't sin anymore. And then it cut to a commercial really quick and it came back and he was gone. <laughs> but I thought it was funny because you can, you can never really answer that way. You can never say, yeah, yeah, you know what? I haven't sinned. I am pretty good. Because the best you can ever say when someone says, hey, have you maybe hurt someone is, I don't know. Maybe I have hurt somebody. You can never say with 100% certainty, no, I have certainly not ever committed that sin. Or even, no, certainly within the last hour, I've not had any kind of an ill will toward anybody that I know or I'm related to or saw on the television. That's a big one. Or on Facebook. <laughs> um, Facebook is bad. Social media is bad. All media, it just, it, it fans flames of things that are already in you and then you sit and you watch the news and you go, oh boy, I hate that guy's guts, blah, blah, blah. And then you go to church and you say, well, no, I, I love everybody. Except the guys on TV or the guys on my Facebook feed. <laughs> you, you, the best you can ever say is, oh, yeah, I don't know, maybe I have. And if you answer, I don't know, maybe I have, oh, come to confession. And if you say, ooh, yeah, I have, come to confession. Okay, um, how are sins to be confessed? Now you know what sins you should confess, how you should think about it, but how do you confess? Well, see, we're doing this out of order. The first question, what is confession? Well, it has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution. That is forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. So you come to confession. 
you confess your sins in faith, trusting in the promises of God to forgive. And then when the pastor says, you are forgiven, you have the faith that says, the Lord has promised this, the Lord has spoken, the Lord has done it. That's true. Now, uh, how do you know if you've made a good confession? Yes, Heath? Um, You're so polite. <laughs> if you go to private... No, no, it doesn't. I'm, I'm not asking this question because there are boxes to check, as if there is some way that you could go to confession and then screw it up. Like, you said the word wrong, and then all of a sudden the pastor says, Get out! It doesn't count now! You know, no, 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 that's just kind of silly. You, lots of people read the right, and especially if you're unfamiliar with it, the language is kind of, I mean, it's church language. Pastors have to practice being able to speak the way they do, even reading from the book. It's church language. It's slightly different. You don't talk that way normally. So yeah, yeah. You might stumble a little bit. You might mispronounce a word. I'm, I'm not going to kick you out. I'd defeat the whole purpose of it all. Just add it to your list of things to confess. Whoops, I uh, <laughs> said something wrong. <laughs> That's a joke. Don't do that, Heath. You don't have to. You don't have to remember it. You don't have to write it down. All right. So. Um, I don't, I'm not asking the question about how you know you've made a good confession from the logistic side, the boxes being checked. I'm asking it from the faith side. How do you as a Christian know if you've made a good confession? And the, okay, sure, yes. The answer is in the parable of the prodigal son, or the prodigal family, really, which we've talked about before. How do you know you've made a good confession? when there's nothing left to say. When you have no excuses, there's no reason for the sins that you've committed. You just say, this is what I did. I am not worthy to be called your son. I'm a bear of no brain at all. That's when you know you've made a good confession, when there's nothing left to say. And then the pastor says, okay, absolvo te, I forgive you. Okay. So faith, faith receives these things. You have no excuses. You have no caveats. You can't fix the problem. And you shouldn't try in confession and absolution. The father cuts the son off. Remember that. That's confession and absolution. The son makes two really good confessions. I have sinned against heaven and against earth. And I am not worthy to be called your son. Yes, 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 yes. And now, how I'm going to rectify this situation is put the best ring on him. I don't care about how you're going to rectify it. I don't care about it. No excuses, no caveats. You confess, here's the absolution. Okay? That's how you know. The best confession is when you have nothing left to say. Okay? Now, um, I'm going to give this to you. We don't really have time to go through it right now. This is the right of confession and absolution. You can find this on the website if you're watching live. It's right there under the Catechumenate tab. Handouts for Lesson 6. There's just the one. Um, so for you two who are going to be confirmed, you know, this class typically doesn't have homework. I really only have two pieces of homework, and this is the first one. Oh, I have more, if you need them. Take, take these. This is just the right with some commentary. You can take it, you can read it, you can see what the whole uh, confession and absolution, private confession and absolution right looks like and what happens. This is typically the right we use. It's a little different from the one in the hymnal. Um, but here's the, here's the thing for you two who are going to be confirmed. And when we start making more of a divide between First Communion and Confirmation, it'll go with First Communion. But the point is this. I want you to come to private confession and absolution not one time, but two times. And it can be any time between now and the Easter Vigil. And you can come early on Sunday morning before Bible class, or you can call me and make an appointment and have it happen any time. But two times. The first time, I want you not to confess anything specific. Just read the right as it is on the page, and then you realize how not scary it really is. And the second time, if there are things that trouble you, that's the time that you confess those. Because you already know from the first time that it's not scary and that it actually makes you feel really good. So those are, that's your first bit of homework now. Two times, 
once just right from the page and the second time there's a little box that says what troubles me in particular is or what burdens me specifically is and that's when you can say I did this, I did this, I didn't do this, I did this, I hurt somebody. And that's when you start being specific. But two times, and then after that two times, after those two times, then you come as often as you want or as often as you need. That's part of the thing about your pastor is he's always on call. We have scheduled time for that, but anytime you want it or you need it, you call your pastor. I'm like a doctor. I always have my phone and I try always to answer it, and if you really need spiritual care, then that's my job to give it. Okay, so that's your assignment. Now, let's, we gotta, really gotta try and finish this up. So we have so much to do, and the Easter Vigil, oh no, it really is kind of my fault. <laughs> I just love teaching the class so much, and then I talk too much, because I like it. Um, let's turn to John chapter, Eight. This one we're going to go through really quickly. Actually, both of these. Whoops. John chapter 8. Starting at verse 2. Uh, now early in the morning, he, that is Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. What's important about that? You, you shouldn't commit adultery? Okay, well, yes. You shouldn't commit adultery. But what's important about what they say? She was caught in adultery. Think about it. How are you caught in adultery? You're caught cheating. Yes, but what does it mean that you're caught? Red-handed? Someone, yeah, red-handed. Somebody saw you. These people are staring through the windows. Or barging into the house. Okay? So already, here's a problem, a little bit of a problem with the Pharisees. Oh, she was caught red-handed. How? It's like when your kids say, Oh, she was... She had her eyes open during the prayer, and you say, how do you know? If your eyes were closed, you know? That's what my parents would always say, and that's the thing. Whoops! <laughs> that's, your, that's, your, uh, that's your reward for being the tattletale. Okay? So, caught in adultery. That means somebody was there. Somebody's spying. Somebody's trying to catch in the act. She's caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. True or false? True, correct, yes. This woman should be stoned. But what do you say? Sly, sly. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus has raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's a lot of really important things. And I'm, I'm just going to take it in order. Okay. They, they bring the accusation to Jesus, and what does he do? He writes in the sand with his finger. And um, doesn't say what he wrote. But then he writes again, and he says, He who is without sin among you, throw the first stone. And there's a lot of speculation about what he writes in the sand. <clears throat> and um, 
one of the things that I think is that's my personal viewpoint so I teach it this way is that he writes down the sins of all the people around him you've done this you've done this you've done this you've done this and he stands up and says look at this which one of you is without sin according to the law of Moses every single one of you ought to be stoned that's the point, see? Yes, the law of Moses does say that the woman ought to be stoned, but the law of Moses also says that the thief ought to be stoned. The slanderer ought to be stoned. Which one of you is without sin? Who wants to throw that first stone against her? And the response is telling, that they all depart. But what is the order in which they depart? Because that matters as well. Oldest first? Yes, the oldest first. Now that's... Bible language, um, when it says the oldest or the or the last, the last ones, um, means the ones who are the wisest. The old there's always um, wisdom with age, so you always respect your elders. Um, that's good, generally speaking, respect your elders. But I'm ta talking biblically, you respect your elders because your elders are the ones who are wise. They've had the life of study and they've had the life of experience. So when they tell you something, you listen and you respect it. So it is the most wise. It's from smartest to dumbest. That's the order that they depart. Smartest to dumbest. The wisest ones hear the words of Jesus and they know. They know and they leave. And the youthful, brash ones among them leave as well. They're being taught a lesson by Jesus and by the wise men among them. And Jesus says, uh, no one condemns you. But that's important because he doesn't say anything about accusing. Because they do accuse. And does Jesus know that she has sinned? Yes. So there is an accusation. And does she deserve to be stoned? Yes, she does. Uh, but he says, neither do I condemn you. Now this is important too, go and sin no more. That very often, this is a verse that's used to give liberty to sin. Well, Jesus says he doesn't condemn me, so it's okay. Mm, but Jesus also says go and sin no more. You see, it's all the way to the beginning of class. You don't say, well, I'm going to get wet anyway, might as well jump in. You say, I really need to try not to fall in. And maybe I will, because maybe I'm a little clumsy, but I should at the very least be working my hardest not to. Go and sin no more. Doesn't mean that you're not going to sin, but it means you strive not to. You run away from the evil things. And this is important because it's, um, this is the voice of absolution, okay? This is when you go to private confession absolution, or just generally speaking, when the pastor says, as called servant or called and ordained servant of the word, I announce the grace of God unto you, blah, 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 blah. It's the voice of Jesus saying, hey, the Father doesn't condemn you. Give your sins to me. The Father doesn't condemn you. Um, absolution acquits the sinner of divine wrath. So if you want to think about it like a court, absolution, you go to trial and your lawyer says, this is a sham trial. There's not, he hasn't even done anything. And they go, oh, you're right. What is this? Acquitted. We have no reason being here. That's, that's the way it works. And it cleans you too. Absolution cleans you. Um, God doesn't hold these sins against you. This is on the vertical plane. Uh, but it also means that there are consequences on earth. Uh, that's the horizontal plane. So God doesn't hold the sins against you. But there are, I mean, you might be punished by the law. Like, going to get a spanking and saying, I'm really sorry, and your parents say, well, I forgive you now, turn around and bend over. There's, you don't avoid the consequence. Your sins are forgiven, but you still die in the flesh because your, sin your flesh is sinful flesh. See, this gets back to your question too, Leanne. Right? So, um, so there's still the mortal consequences for any sin, just like there's mortal death. There have been mortal so consequences for sin since the day you were conceived. The day you were conceived, you were... You were conceived uh, with the expectation that at some point you would die. Um, that's a cool thing about Ash Wednesday, by the way. This is just because I'm prepping for the day and working on my homily. But Ash Wednesday, the, the ashes, the imposition of ashes makes equals out of everybody. The 
infant and the old man alike are equals because they are all made of ash and will return. Death makes equals of everyone. There is no one greater or lower than anyone else because death comes for all. Um, now, some, because there are consequences, and a good example of that is Second Samuel, David confessed his sins to the prophet Nathan, the sins he committed with Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan said, the Lord forgives you. But there are consequences. And what happened to the child? The child died. That was part of the consequence of the sinful act. So there are always consequences. Um, but you're never condemned. That's the, that's the thing about the law. The law is... It's easy to think about the law as if it's this ravenous beast that comes after you. It's always going to tell me about my sins. Oh, no, I should be really scared of it, shouldn't I? Because it's going to tell me how bad I am. And the Lutherans have a tendency to make the law a bigger, scarier thing than it really is. And you almost get into this dualistic caveman mindset of law bad, gospel good. And then you live your life thinking that. But the reality is the law is really kind of toothless. What's the law going to do? The worst it can do is gum you to death. Um, because it's always going to accuse you, but it'll never condemn you. Because you're acquitted in the blood of Christ in absolution. See this? The law will always accuse, but it'll never condemn. Not you. Um, but there are consequences, so some of the things that that entails are um, making things right. And this is where we start talking about penance. So you come and you confess your sins to the pastor, and the pastor may give you penance. And um, what penance is, is essentially just making right your wrongs. So you rob the bank. That's the example I always use for penance. You rob the bank, and then you come to your pastor, and you say, oh, I robbed the bank. That's, I feel really bad. And the pastor says, your sins are forgiven. But you need to return that money, and you need to turn yourself in. You need to make things right doesn't mean your sins aren't forgiven. And the making it right part doesn't merit your sins. Your sins are forgiven. But your, their sins are forgiven on this vertical plane between you and God. There's no spiritual uh, consequence for your sins because your sins have been washed away. But there still are consequences on the horizontal plane between your neighbors. You robbed the bank and there is a law that says don't do that. And there is a consequence for breaking that law. So just because the Lord forgives your sins and annuls the spiritual penalties of sin doesn't mean that as long as you're living in a sinful world as sinful man that you don't still suffer consequences for the things that you do. So you steal a pack of gum and you tell pastor, I stole the pack of gum. Pastor says, your sins are forgiven, but you have to go return the pack of gum. You don't, you don't get to have your gum and eat it too. Pastors yeah. do give the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this is, this is kind of why uh, pastors make bad jurors. There's an easy way to get out of jury duty if you're a pastor. Oh, I probably shouldn't say this because this is live streaming right now. <laughs> it, <laughs> pastors make bad jurors. Pastors can get out of jury duty because they ask you, do you think you can be impartial? And the pastor says, hey, I don't know. My job is kind of to forgive sins and look at people as if they're always innocent. So I don't know. You tell me. And they say, okay, thanks. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, that's the job. That's the job. My job is to forgive sins. So if you come to me with sins, I'm going to forgive them because that's what the Lord told me to do. But I will give you penance. now, I, Or I may give you penance. Okay, so let's look at this really quickly. You never thought about it. Whoops. Never thought about it this way before. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Okay. Um, and while you're looking this up, I'm going to tell you, uh, you can't fix the damage your, to yourself. Um, you can't fix the damage to yourself. That's what confession and absolution is. That's the healing, the damage that you've caused to yourself by joining yourself to sin and by manifesting sin in you. However, um, well, and, and though I should add, and you can't take back the damage that you caused to another person. So, um, you know, a hurtful word and an arrow are neither easily recalled. You can't 
pull back the arrow you've shot out of your bow. You can't pull back the bullet you shot out of your gun. You can't take back the harsh word that you spoke against your brother. You can't take back the wrong that you have done. Now, the wrong against yourself is healed by the Lord. The wrong against your neighbor um, is rectified in penance. God will heal you and God will enable you to mitigate the damage and to um, help to recover from the damage you've caused to your neighbor. Okay, that's how all of this works. So confession is not a deal and it's not an exchange to where you say, hey, forgive me my sins and if you do it, then I'll be nice to Joe Blow, my neighbor. Okay, that's not how it is. Um, and the hurt that you've caused your neighbors will always be caused. I mean, you can't unrob the bank. Once it's done, it's done. So you can't go back in time and change it. It's done. But you can decide how you go about dealing with the issue from there. Okay, so Luke chapter 19. Then, from verse 1, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Why is he rich? Because he's a tax collector. Yeah, but what does that mean, though? His tax collectors are only supposed to collect the taxes. And they don't keep the taxes. They give them to the Romans. Why is he rich as a tax collector? Probably because he steals from them. He steals from them, correct. He says, this is what you owe. And it is more than what they owe. And he skims off the top. That's why people hate the tax collectors. Tax collectors are traitors because they support the Romans and work for them and enforce the taxes. And they're scumbags because they rob and, and skim off the top and they make themselves rich. Okay, That's why they're hated. And he, Zacchaeus, sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So this is penance, okay? It's restitution. Your sins are forgiven, sure, but you still robbed the bank. Zacchaeus, your sins are forgiven. Salvation has come to your house, but you still stole from your neighbor. Restitution. So penance is a natural response after absolution. If I've done wrong, if I spoke a harsh word to my neighbor, then perhaps my penance is go and apologize to my neighbor and make things right. Okay? I mean, it's really, you see, it's, it's making restitution. It's fixing or attempting to uh, repair the damage that was done. But it's something that's enabled by that absolution that forgiveness that you've received, uh, so also I forgive, or so also, as I have sought mercy from the Lord, I seek mercy from the ones who I have slighted. Okay? Absolution is not tied to this conditionally. So I don't tell you, um, your sins are forgiven if you return the money to the bank. No, no. Your sins are forgiven, and you will return the money to the bank. Okay? If and and are much different. One is conditional, one is an addition. Um, so restitution really is free grace that is being lived out. It is uh, the work of an active faith. That's one of the things faith is. It's always active. And it's a, the work of a faith that has received and then seeks to give. Okay? So remember this about absolution, confession absolution. The only sins that Jesus can't forgive are the sins you don't give to him. Um, sins are... Addition. I mean, you can get a pretty big number doing addition, but grace in absolution is exponential. So there's never a time when you come to confess your sins and the pastor speaking for and as the Lord will say, oh, well, shoot, uh, I'm a little short on absolution for you today. You've, you've done a bit too much sinning. Never. 
Sin is addition, but grace in, in absolution is exponential. So you'll always receive grace. There's never a time when you won't. Okay? Um, any questions about this? This is where we'll end. We're a little over time, but we did start just a hair late. So I'm okay with it as long as you are. Okay. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.